Hi, this is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. The name of the show is Across the Pond because we're over here on the East Coast of the United States, right outside of Philadelphia, the city of love. And we record our show uh, on the campus of Cabrini University, which is right next to Eastern University. Um, uh, traditionally a Catholic school and Protestant school, uh, evangelical school right next to each other. And we like talking about uh, the stuff that's going on in the world around us. And this week, uh, we, we don't have a guest, but we got, we got a great conversation we're going to have about technology. Because Tony, I can remember, Tony, when, when I, I majored in sociology at Eastern University, and you uh, talked about the effects of technology on us as people and as a society. So, man, I mean, and that was... That was back in the 1900s, right? This is the I graduated in 1997, so it's wow. even wilder now. But one of the quotes from uh, Eric Fromm was, uh, "We we live in a world where machines act like people and people act like machines." Yeah. <laughs> and what, what tell, tell us what 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 you're seeing as you as you as a sociologist, you look at our technical society. Well, you know, sociologists are aware that we made a big improvement over our days as cavemen and cavewomen, you know, those primitive people. We invented tools. Mm. Tools were things that we used. Mm. Uh, we determined how they would be used. And we controlled the tools. In this age of machines, we don't control the machines. You get a job and they tell you how to adapt to the machine. Here's a machine. Here's how to use it. Here's a computer. Here's how to program it. In fact, people have to adapt to machinery. People have to adapt to technology rather than technology being a tool that they use for their own interest. Mm -hmm. In short, we are being enslaved by technology. A guy goes to work and uh, sits in front of a, a screen, uh, you know, uh, putting, pushing buttons all day long. And our tech, technician here, speaking about technology, is waving his hand because in that office, that's what he does all day. Pushes, a, looks at a screen and pushes buttons. I come in in the morning, he's pushing buttons on the screen. He does that all day long. Then he gets in his car and he goes home. But even there, if there's a traffic jam, what does he do? He turns on his uh, GPS and they, uh, so he doesn't determine where he goes. Mm. A machine says, here's the most efficient way to go home. And he takes the most efficient way. When he gets home, he turns on the television. He's controlled by technology, morning, noon, mm. and night. I mean, it's frightening. I saw, I saw this picture actually on the, uh, uh, on social media, nonetheless, uh, <laughs> of these kids, uh, on their phones they're all sitting around a table like but they're looking you know each of them at their phones and it said this is what our kids are doing and it said this is what we did when we were kids and it has these kids you know all muddy playing in a pond and it's yeah. almost like we've we've live in in a in a in a virtual world sometimes where we've uh, lost the art of i wonder what it's doing to us as as communal people to have so many virtual friends, yet you wonder, like, you know, do well, kids, we have any real friends? Kids don't play with other people anymore. They, they, they have computer games. They sit there pushing buttons, and they're on computer games instead of having fun with other kids. Uh, this is a dehumanizing reality. 
I mean, we are humanized through relationships, but relationships are dying in this technological society. I was in a restaurant the other day. I looked over to the next table. There was a guy, good-looking guy, good-looking woman. They weren't talking to each other. Each of them was on uh, his his or her cell phone uh, sending messages. I, I don't know whether they were sending messages to each other or what was going on. I mean, yeah, in defense of it, I mean, we're going to start to sound like old people. Um, but what, what I, you know, one of the things that we did, this is wild, was we um, had a Skype call from the young people in my neighborhood where we called the, a group of young people in Kabul in Afghanistan. And they were able to talk to each other. And the, the topic of conversation was, what are our dreams for the world? Yeah. And it was amazing to see how much the world has shrunk, where sure. the kids on my block are listening to this kid, these kids in Afghanistan, 15-year-olds, talk about dreaming of a world where we're free of violence and where they don't have to worry about their friends dying. And it's exact, they're finishing each other's sentences across the world, you know? And then when Michael Brown was killed in uh, Ferguson, you know, this monumental uh, police shooting that launched so much of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the kids in Kabul asked us to take um, a flower for them and put it on the memorial site for Michael Brown. So it, it, there's there's a sense that like you think of the Arab Spring, you think of some of these things that are happening around the world. Technology is playing a major role. So, you yeah. know, do you have anything good to say about it? Sure. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, it does help us to communicate with each other. Like you said, uh, people in Kabul are communicating with people here North on the Philly. East Coast yeah. of the United States. You, you know, but there's an interesting line on this one. Uh, when they were in the, this is like more than 100 years ago. Uh, Henry David Thoreau, who is this great American humanistic philosopher, uh, had a little cabin uh, up in Massachusetts. And he was living at Walden Pond, as they called it, living a life for a year apart from, quote unquote, civilization. One day he got up, walked out of his cabin, and some men were putting up wires Mm. uh, uh, on, on poles. And he went on, he said, what are you doing? They said, we're stringing up wires. For what? And one of the men said, haven't you heard? They've invented the telegraph. And now the men in Maine can communicate instantaneously with men and women in Florida. Mm, mm. And Thoreau said, but what if the people in Maine have nothing to say to the people in Florida? (laughs) Great great statement. I mean, what happens is our methodology has become incredibly efficient, but the content that we're communicating is becoming more and more inane, more and yeah, more superficial. Because you were saying we're learning a lot about, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So what, what was the line you said? Yeah, I said, you know, what computers are doing is they're allowing us on any given subject, you know, you can log in and get uh, incredible amounts of information. What's the word I was looking for uh, Algorithm, you know, get an algorithm. You can find out everything about a subject. And I was saying uh, that a line I've come up with is with all of this technology, we're able to, you know, focus in on a very narrow subject and we can learn more and more about less and less (laughs) until eventually we know everything about nothing. (laughs) We know everything about nothing. You know, but we're... 
we're in a, an age. The world kind of at your fingertips. But, you know, it's interesting because people have been talking about this for a while. One of the, the books you had me read uh, in sociology classes was Jacques Ellul, and he's got some things to say yeah, about this, that's right? right. Uh, he, he, uh, here's his major theme. Great French thinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a Christian. Yeah. Um, the way Jacques Ellul considered the greatest ideologist uh, critiquing modern society since Karl Marx. As a matter of fact, he would say the major influences in his life. When I look at who the major influences were, I, uh, I said to myself, well, they're the major influences on my life. Mm. He, he cites the three major influences. Soren Kierkegaard, Karl Barth, you see, mm-hmm. and Karl Marx. These are the people who molded his consciousness. What an incredibly interesting uh, tri- triumvirate yeah. because they have influenced me greatly. But uh, uh, he became a Christian, and uh, uh, he was just working one day at his desk, and suddenly, and this is where technology fails us, suddenly he became aware of a presence, hmm. such an awesome presence that he was, he was overwhelmed with awe, reverence, and the next word was fear. He went running from the house, running down the street, realizing that there was no way he could get away from this presence. Mm. And he Mm. came to realize that this presence that would not let him go was Jesus. Mm. And he became a Christian, and a very devout Christian at that. And interestingly enough, to go along with you, he, uh, he became not a communist, he became an anarchist. Anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. Did well, you? I, you? You looped me right into that, didn't you? But yeah. I, I, uh, I do remember reading, you know, uh, Anarchy and Christianity, in one of his books, and yeah. uh, we we passed it around a bit. And he has, he's got a lot of good uh, good points. You know, well, his go- major point his major point is that um, the governments as we understand them in today's world all survive by means of violence. Mm-hmm. That the only way they can continue to survive is through violently putting down those who would challenge them, you see. And so since, as a Christian, he walks away from violence, he says there is no such thing as a political system that is not built on violence. Mm. You can see Mm. his logic. So he becomes an anarchist. And he says, don't get upset. This is not some kind of worldwide conspiracy. I want to be part of a small group of people uh, in each society that questions the power and the violence of the state. Yeah. That's you. Well, it's had lots of different iterations, too, in El Salvador, the base communities. You know, there's yeah. so many different movements around yeah. the world. But, yeah. We don't want to be an alternative form of government. We're not stepping forward and saying, uh, we want to rule the country. We're saying, no, we're here to question the country. We're here to question all power as it's exercised uh, through violence in society. Yeah, although I, I am suspicious of anything that ends in ist. <laughs> I like to think that we're existential lovers. But yeah, the the uh, the Jacques Ellul is a great voice. Now, as you think of uh, the technology that we have now, I mean, I, I it's almost um, like we're losing the art of being together, you know, and, and the more virtual friends you have, I, I, I sometimes say it's like eating virtual food. You're going to get really hungry if you don't have real community. So one of the interesting things that Eastern did at one point um, was invite all the incoming students to unplug. 
yeah. from social media uh, in order to be fully present with each other. I thought it was a really interesting idea. You know, is like instead of focusing on your virtual community, you're all new here. You know, like let's let's focus on building real community. Yeah. And it might be that some of us can just um, moderate our technology some so that we make space for real community. Like Katie and I, we deliberately don't have a TV television. You know, like in our communities or houses, but we have we have a, a projector that we can show films sometimes if we want to watch them together. But, you know, our technology ends up, we become its tool rather than it being our tool if we're not careful. So I, I think in, in, in uh, our, when I got married, you know, Katie said, we don't need a microwave. We don't need the air conditioner. We don't need a TV. Yeah, well, <laughs> so she's I, like, say, I say I became Amish when I got married, yeah. you know, but I, I think that we do need to question the technology um, and how, what it's doing to us, you know, because it does, it does sort of feel like it's doing something to our, our souls when we're looking at screens all the time rather than into people's eyes. When I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, I took a group of students out to the Amish country. Pennsylvania Dutch, they call them, uh, out in Pennsylvania. And these people who are part of what they've been called the Radical Reformation. Yeah. Uh, Mennonites, Amish, um, uh, the uh, Which, incidentally, the in people Christ. that haven't, aren't familiar with church history, the, the Anabaptists and the Radical Reformers are a fascinating, often like kind of lost part of church history. But in a lot of these conflicts where Protestants and Catholics were killing each other, they were the only people that were saying no to and, all violence. And right? eventually, <laughs> you know, Luther, who's a big hero of the Reformation, right, right. organized the complete massacre yeah. of the Amicans uh, in, in the city of Munster. They had taken over the city, yeah, and, yeah. and they, they were against violence. And, of course, it was easy to wipe them out because they didn't believe in violence. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, so I always question when it's Reformation Sunday, why uh, people who are in the Baptist or and the Baptist tradition are so happy about the Reformation. It was the Reformation that organized the, the wiping out of the Anabaptist movement in the city of Munster. Now, this is Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne, and we're talking about technology and the uh, threats that it poses for society itself. Uh, one of the things that is I'm increasingly aware. Uh, I'm going to be at this conference over in Lisbon mm. uh, in just a few days uh, where there'll be 20,000 people there to talk about the uses of the web, the uses of uh, computers. And I, I'm, I'm going to be, I have a little talk to give. I, I think I'm going to call it the voice crying in the wilderness yeah. because it is a wilderness. And there's even every probability that there will be the development of uh, robots that will become sexual partners. Mm. I mean, whoa, whoa. So, and, you know, you can always say, well, what's the advantage of that? Well, for one thing, if you've got a female robot, she doesn't get a headache. <laughs> so, so you're gonna, you know, I saw this thing with the uh, the uh, soldiers that are robots too, and I mean, you think about our drones and things now. Exactly. We, we there's a uh, Medea Benjamin. She wrote a book. Um, I think it's called Remote Controlled War. But we literally have uh, machines that are killing remotely and operated remotely. But that does something to us too. I heard some drone operators that are talking that were talking about the the unique injury of conscience of what it does to someone to operate war like it almost looks like a video game you know and then you know you're home with your family that night and it's it's just to be operating drones that are taking people's lives like these operators are saying it does something to your soul 
The Pentagon, which is just on the edge of Washington, D.C., has a huge section in which people are controlling drones that are staging attacks on villages in Afghanistan. Mm. So you sit there at a computer and you program, uh, you got a satellite out in space, picking out your, uh, your target, and uh, some guy uh, 5,000, 7,000 miles away on a computer is programming a drone to come in mm. and bomb that village, killing people. I mean, we have even dehumanized killing. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to get your hands dirty in the process of killing. And what's interesting, when I talk about the dehumanization effect of, uh, of uh, technology, is that Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, mm-hmm. talked about his trinity. The trinity of Plato was the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm. Those three things are what make us human. That we are under, able to understand beauty, we are able to understand truth, uh, we are unable to understand goodness. Mm. And the question is, do computers, do, do technological instruments have anything to do with these three things? Do they create beauty? Do they even understand beauty? Do they understand truth or do they only understand information? Mm. Please note, there's a big difference between information and truth. Uh, Once again, we have people who are gathering huge amounts of information but have no concept of truth. Mm. Or or as our friend uh, uh, Schaefer says uh, so well, we are in this technological society, we are becoming people who have gathered in so much information that we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm. What a good line. We've learned how to figure the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm. You know, when when I think about technology, one of my my memories was uh, when we were in India working with the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's Order. They, you know, her first home that she started was the home for the dying, the destitute and dying. And every day we would take care of people as they died. But people would come from other countries, right? And they would be stunned by the lack of technology, you know, and sometimes even offended. You know, they would say, this person doesn't need to die. All they need is an IV. And Mother Teresa's point, which is interesting enough, was our goal is not to prolong life. Our, pro- our goal is for people to die with dignity and without fear and with someone holding their hand. But there does some, be something to be said for the technology, right? That, that someone doesn't need to die because they don't have an IV or right. they don't have malaria medicine or like a mosquito net that costs, you know, $3. But, about, but there's a balance there, isn't there? Well, 35, maybe 40 years ago, there was a... Uh, economist out of England uh, who wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. Yeah. E.F. Schumacher. I've, I've got that on my wall. It, a it, giant banner that says Small is Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very good. And what he's saying is, in that book, mm-hmm. is technology is good. It makes life easier. It, it makes burdensome tasks uh, more able to be handled. That's all the good side. But he says, we must put limits on our technology. We must, in fact, uh, recognize that technology improved our standard of living up until a given point. 
beyond that point, technology takes the joy out of life. Mm. Uh, technology reduces relationships to mechanisms. Uh, and we really have to say, at a certain point, stop. Mm. We want this much technology, but not anymore. Because the more technology we have beyond this point, the more we live in an, in a virtual reality instead of reality itself. Yeah. And uh, uh, that, that needs to be said. This is Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne, and we're broadcasting from uh, Cabrini University and Eastern University here on the East Coast. Cabrini is where I have taught for so many years. Eastern, yeah. East. Did I say I taught at Cabrini? Yeah. But I we, actually we... <laughs> did teach a course at Cabrini once. I did teach one course here. But basically, I'm a faculty member at Eastern University, an evangelical school just outside of Philadelphia. It's where you should send your kids if they want a good education. And if they don't come to Eastern, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest their armpits forever <laughs> oh, and ever. So it is. But it is. Jokingly, I wish aside. I could unsee that uh, yeah. that visual there of the the fleas. But uh, so let me bounce something off you. Like when some sometimes people ask me if we need this technology, the, my 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 uh, new thought on this is: Does it help us love better? There's does does it help us? Does it help me love my neighbor? Does it help me love God? And if not, then why would I want to clutter my life with it? That's kind of the my litmus test now. What, well, what do you think? <laughs> the, yeah, well, you're right, because here's the, here's, the, here's the thing that needs to be added here. Uh, when technology was first introduced, it was the idea that it would shorten the work week. Mm -hmm. You know, the technology would enable us to do the same amount of work in a shorter period of time. And we'd have more time for leisure. Yeah, like the checkout line at the uh, the grocery store. Yeah. I go there and it takes me five times longer than when I just go to see a person. Yeah. You know, I, did, I was at the airport and I was uh, checking out and I couldn't figure it out. And I went to see the, the, the person, the human being, you know, and um, she she said, oh, I'm so glad you came to see me. Those machines are replacing us. You know, and she did all this stuff. She got me a, a, a better seat. And she's like, that computer wouldn't have done that for yeah, you. And there she, you go. Yeah, so you see yeah. people. Yeah, you smile at the computer. the machine. You smile at the computer. It doesn't smile back. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but uh, the reality is that um, Christianity is crucial here because um, C.S. Lewis saw it uh, in his book. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, wrote a science fiction book called The Hideous Strength. Mm. And in this novel, he's, the setting is at Oxford. It never says it's Oxford, but you can figure out as you're reading the book that it's Oxford, that the sociologist who is a Christian is walking to church on Sunday morning, and he meets his colleagues who are going in the opposite. He said, where are you going this early in the morning? And they said, to worship. Hmm. And he says, I, th I thought you guys said you didn't believe in God, that there was no God. And the one guy says, there wasn't. But there is now, and God has become this gigantic computer that has assembled information on everybody. The computer has become omniscient. It knows everything about you. It can program you. It knows what kind of food uh, you'll buy. It knows where it kind of entertainment like the NSA, you want. Right? <laughs> um, it's the Antichrist. That's the whole point of the book, that the computer is the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, to be Christian is to stand against technology that has become, here's the word, idolatrous. Mm. Do we worship technology? Has technology replaced God? Is technology going to solve all of our problems? 
Is it going to bring the good, the true, the beautiful into our lives? Is it going to humanize us? Is it going to enable us to love better and more effectively? This yeah. show is coming to you from the United States. It's from uh, Eastern uh, University and Cabrini University. And uh, we promote Red Letter Christianity. In the last minute and 25 seconds, Shane, tell them about Red Letter Christianity. Yeah, you can go to our website, redletterchristians.org, or if you're specifically in the UK, you can go to redletterchristians.org.uk. And w one of the best things is we've got all kinds of different people that are uh, preaching and writing about Jesus and justice. And you can also find a place there where you can join the movement. You can sign uh, up to be a Red Letter Christian and make a covenant to try to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So we've been talking about technology, and uh, maybe an idea this week is to... Uh, Turn off the, the, the screens and uh, spend some more time with people or instead of writing an email, maybe write an old fashioned letter or visit someone in an old folks home or in, in a prison. Uh, maybe even the season of Lent as we think towards Easter, go on a technology fast so we can uh, uh, restore the art of actually being with people and being with nature and stuff. You got ideas on this? No, I don't need ideas. You said it well, man. <laughs> I mean, he's preaching to you, people. He's preaching to you. That voice you just heard was the voice of Shane Claiborne. My name is Tony Campolo, and uh, we're here every week at this time. Go to the website, redletterchristians.org, or if you're in the U.K., redletterchristians.org.uk. Blessings. <laughs>